Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who loves the culture in Silicon Valley almost as much as I love the culture at Mar-a-Lago. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know around tech and beyond. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. And by the way, Eric, that was an excellent one today for this guest. Today in the red chair is Anna Wiener, a contributing writer to The New Yorker who covers Silicon Valley, startup culture, and technology. She's also author of a new book that's getting a lot of great reviews called Uncanny Valley, a memoir. Anna, welcome to Rico Decode. Thank you, Karen. So we Thanks were introduced by me. Casey Newton, who just just <laughs> loves you and loves what you're, with your book and everything else about what you do. But it's such a good introduction by Casey. Explain to people who you are. You're getting amazing reviews for this book. Um, it's a memoir of Silicon Valley. There's been a lot of memoirs. There's a lot of people talking about their time here. And this one's really sticking out. It's, it's interesting because it's not something people haven't written about. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the book itself and how you decided to write it. And then we're going to get into the book itself and then topics around it. Tell your story of how you got here and how you decided to write this. Sure. So I came here in 2013. I had been working in book publishing in New York. And I briefly joined an ebook startup there and then came out here to work for a data analytics startup. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mostly what brought me here was just a desire for a future, a sense of momentum, a sense of belonging. I was a very low-level employee. I came out here to do a customer support job. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mostly, I wanted to feel, having graduated directly into a recession in 2009, that I had some foothold in, in the future and that there was the some future. sense of momentum okay. in so my world. So you book publishing. Let's go back to that. Mm-hmm. So you were in a profession that a lot of people, a lot of smart young people get into the idea of book publishing, which is sort of on its last legs, kind of the concept that it's not on its last legs, but the concept is that it's the past and the, the way people publish books. But it used to be sort of the profession smart intellectual people wanted to get into or, or dying to get into despite the low pay, despite the sort of slow crawl up the ladder there. So you were you moved into that profession presumably because that's what you liked, correct? Yeah. It seemed appealing to me to be working with books. It's mm-hmm. one of, I sort of tend to have a blind spot to things that might be interesting to me. I, I've not married my interests with my um, work mm-hmm. often. So yeah, I, it wasn't the prestige, actually. I, I know what you're talking about. There's yeah. sort of like a dimension of prestige with these older industries in New York. It just was exciting to me that I could be working on a product that I really cared about. That you cared about. Okay, so what made you shift from that? What the idea? Now, ebook startups at the time were, what year was this? That So I started thinking about leaving in 2012, mm-hmm. and I was sort of looking around, and, you know, Amazon just cast a shadow over the entire industry. Right. And it seems like there wasn't a lot of 
upward mobility within the industry. I kind of I was seeing people who had jobs that I wanted and they were leaving the industry mm-hmm. <laughs> and everything was consolidating, shrinking. So I read about this ebook startup that was doing like a Netflix for ebook sort of product and thought, oh, I can be useful here. I have knowledge that might be interesting to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I reached out and I think they were like, oh, this woman's a go-getter. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> I wrote an email, you know, it's one of these like long, embarrassing <laughs> emails. And I went on as a three-month contractor mm-hmm. sort of to be the person who knew about books. Um, right. What did you do there? Explain what you did. I wrote a lot of emails talking about how much I loved books and I did some curating of in-app titles, but it was mostly, it was only in, I guess, beta or alpha. I was in one of these. Uh, so the only people who were using it, I think it was pre-beta, Kara. I think okay. it was alpha. Alpha. All right. um, I don't know. It, the only people who were using the app were friends and family and investors. So mm-hmm. it was a little bit of a gratuitous job. Mm-hmm. Um, and mostly I was just like an office manager trying to find furniture and ordering Fresh Direct. So, <laughs> um, you know, it was a company of three founders, one engineer and me. Mm-hmm. And toward the end of my tenure, they were like, this has been interesting, but there really isn't a job for you. There wasn't even a public product. So um, they helped me find a job out here at an analytics company. And at that point, I was already hooked. You know, I was like, I love this feeling of a small team. I love the speed. I love the momentum. There was so much money. Like, I don't want to discount that factor in my decision. Mm -hmm. I was making suddenly $10,000 more a year if I had stayed for a year. Right. Um, And my first job in tech in Silicon Valley was more than twice my publishing salary. So talk about that. So what made you move out here? Because not everybody does that. So you you were not a technical person because that's usually how people get here. They usually have some technical degree or they want to start a company or they want to join Facebook or Google or whatever. It is true that I wanted none of those things. Yes, yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I felt like I had nothing to lose. It seemed like an adventure. I sort of had this idea that I would come out here, I'd have this job in customer support for a year, I'd probably return to New York after that and try to leverage it into a better job in another industry or in tech as well. Um, But it, you know, I was 25. I'd only ever lived in the tri-state area, so Mm -hmm. it felt like an adventure to me. And what was your vision of Silicon Valley before you came out? Because this was the beginning of the end. of You know, everything was sort of up and to the right. There was a lot of fanboys. These people were celebrated as heroes. That It started to shift not long after you started working in the sector. Yeah, I was pretty oblivious to that. I have to say, I think that I felt, I treated it, or in my mind, it was a small business. You know, it was mm-hmm. a company that was in this broader ecosystem that I didn't totally pay attention to or really understand. But, you know, I went out and I met the people who worked there, and they were all really smart, and they were all kind of like me. You know, a lot of people with liberal arts backgrounds who have mm-hmm. found their way into this universe. And uh I got. I mean, what what drew me here is what has kept me here, which is the culture, and it's what keeps me writing about it. I find it fascinating. It's full of human drama and mm-hmm. psychological insight. So, um, you know, I, I definitely am not. I don't have a programming background. I didn't even like do MySpace as a kid. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think for no, me, you're it talking just about it from a, a sociological perspective. That's how which how you're approaching sure. it. Like, it doesn't really matter that you don't know how tech works necessarily. And I reject the the classification of non-technical. I think right. that if you're working in a startup, you have to be technical. Um, I think a lot of end users are technical. Mm-hmm. Um, just because you're not writing code every day doesn't necessarily discount you from that category. All right. So talk about your impressions when you first got here. This book does a really good job of sort of you're coming into, it's almost like stranger in a strange land. Like you get here <laughs> and you, what, what did you expect versus what happened? And talk a little bit about sort of your initial thoughts and how they gel. Because you did try very hard to fit in. Like you sort of embraced the culture of 
of tech, I guess. There is a certain San Francisco culture of tech that's different than other places. Yeah, and some of it is value-based and some of it is sort of aesthetic, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that I really tried on—well, I guess I, I, I indulged in both. Yeah, so, you did. Yeah, I mean, I moved out here. I didn't know a ton of people in San Francisco. I was 25. I was single. I didn't really know that if you're employee 20 at a startup that's doing really well and growing very quickly, that that's going to be your whole life. Like, I sort of had this vague idea that maybe I would, like, do something creative on the side and this would mm -hmm. be my day job. Um, this was my whole life. Yeah. So for a little while, at least, until I sort of started to back off of it. But that I didn't anticipate. I was the fourth woman out of 20 at the company, actually a pretty good ratio, all things considered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the things that, that I would criticize now are actually the things that were really intoxicating at the start. Which, so talk about that. What intoxicated yeah. you? Um, the sense of agency that mm -hmm. everyone had, the sense that we owned it, this collective responsibility and you know, if we saw someone wearing our company T-shirt in public, this was like an event, you know? <laughs> we, would, we would share that with each other. That was so exciting. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. It's just really thrilling to do well. And I think for me, especially having come from an industry that, you know, felt like we were surrounded by dinosaurs or that we were the dinosaurs, I don't know. If, coming from an industry where it felt like everything was falling apart mm -hmm. and everything was shrinking, um, to suddenly be making money, to have the company be making money, it felt like this huge social affirmation. Like, I suddenly felt like I had utility and value in the world based on this very simple metric, which was money. Right. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I, I, I will criticize that now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but at the time, you know, it felt, uh, it felt amazing to feel valued and to feel like I had a place in the world. So talk about the sense of agency, because that's a really interesting mm -hmm. word to use, the idea of agency, because it is one of the factors that moves people in tech. I often get, like, you're, you're, you're sort of uh, bumming out our vibe, essentially. But this idea of, like, moving forward at highest speed, damn the torpedoes kind of personality, like, personality type that is here is, like, don't, we can change anything, that concept, which is still around to this day. Mm -hmm. And we should be the ones to change it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, why you? But, of course, it's us. So talk a little bit about that idea. When you get here, it, it is very intoxicating, and it's also very uh, inspiring in a lot of ways, even though a lot of what's behind it is pretty much bullshit many of the times. But talk a little bit about how that feels to be part of it. Because I think people, one of the things that you do very well in this book is really you're critical of it and yet not cruel to the concept of what people are trying to do here. It's sort of people, there was a quote, and I, I, I think I lost it in this, in my thing, my one of my apps didn't work. Um, but it was the idea that an archive of what, in hindsight, and this is a story you did in The Guardian, just an archive of what, in hindsight, is very obvious ways to navigate work situations that were overly complex because I didn't know how to be as a person. So they're creating these cultures, this culture, and that was a big part of it. So talk a little bit about that, that what, what's intoxicating in that uh, being a part of that group. I think this feeling that your contributions matter. Mm -hmm. I mean, book publishing, by contrast, is a pretty sclerotic industry, mm -hmm. and uh, it's very analog in its in its way. Um, and there's a reason for that, actually. I mean, it takes a long time to put a book together for a reason, and you can usually tell when a book has been written hastily or when it's been crashed, you know, when it's mm -hmm. been pushed out for publication early. Um, I mean, I think for me... I was working in customer support, so I was directly engaged with the people who were using our product, and mm -hmm. they loved it. And that, I just can't, I can't overemphasize how good that feels. Mm -hmm. um, and you're surrounded by 
people who are smart and motivated and everyone's committed to this project and you're being rewarded for it in many different ways, financially, socially. Um, and we would have these like customer events, uh, I think monthly, where there'd be some sort of presentation about analytics and then mingling. And people would come up and you felt like sort of like you had street cred working at this company. Um, people were impressed by your status in the ecosystem. So I don't know. I think for me, it was just a social affirmation. And then inside the company, this feeling that if you could prove that you could do something, you could leverage that into a job. Mm-hmm. That actually didn't happen for me, even though I was I, I sort of experienced um, the flip side of that, which is that you do all sorts of work outside of your job description and are not compensated for that mm-hmm. um, or given any sort of title, whatever. Um, because you're down for, in in my in our case the company had this phrase down for the cause so mm-hmm. explain I, that for people that was a really great <laughs> expression um, they always have those at these companies DFTC yeah yeah down for the cause it just meant you know committing yourself to the company doing whatever it took to get the company you know moving forward um, so for me to be specific about it I uh, was working in customer support then in customer success. And was doing a lot of copywriting because we didn't have a full, fully-fledged marketing department. Mm-hmm. And it was getting to the point where it was a, a significant workload, and I asked if I could have a raise mm-hmm. uh, or a title promotion to reflect that. And I was told that I was doing it because I cared. Mm-hmm. And I did really care, and I, right. that is why I was doing it. Um, right. I was also doing it because I wanted to keep my job. Right. But uh, I then there was a discussion about how I could become the copywriter, but... I would be paid less than a customer support representative. Uh-huh. And so to me, it's like you you kind of have these ideals and you have this culture that feels really intoxicating, and then you run up against the realities of this being a business. Right. Um, I actually think that Silicon Valley could be much improved if everyone would just admit that what they're doing is running businesses. Right. Like, let's all just be really straightforward about that. Right. But, um, and I'm curious if that ties into what you were saying earlier yeah. about the culture changing. Maybe people right. are just being more honest. No, I don't think they are. I don't think they are. I think they're being forced to do so. I think that's what's in, what's happening here. And I think what's really, you know, the concept of— I, my very first article for the Wall Street Journal was on their stupid phrases, like a lot of their—like, down for the cause is just another one of the many, many. And you go over them, a what bunch of them. What are the other ones you Oh, remember? I forget. I, I don't even remember. It was 20 years ago. Like, they had all these—two things was, one, their dumb phrases and their dumb titles for themselves. Like, I think uh, Jerry Yang was chief Yahoo. Right. They all had chief experience officer, chief—they just—if you could find this story, it was 20 <laughs> years ago. But they all gave them such idiot titles for what they were doing at their— companies as if this was a playground versus a company. And I made fun of it. And then they, the same thing with uh, the clothing, like how they downplay their wealth by wearing, you know, really juvenile clothes, granimals, essentially, is what I think I called them at the time. And so it was really, it was super interesting, this constant juvenilization of what they're doing or silliness to it, mm-hmm. um, when in fact they had real-world impact. And I think it didn't come into four until there was real-world impact uh, just like at Facebook with social media, with Trump, with everything else. And then the chickens come home to roost, essentially. And so I think that was, to me, what I liked about this book was all the phrases. I mean, you have a whole bunch of them here that I hadn't heard. Like, Verbling, is that right? Go through a couple of them. Well, that's a company name. Yeah, oh, Verbling. I'm sorry. The, yeah. the, 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 talk about the word. The, the words. Down for the count was to, or down, down for the, the cause. cause. Down for the count. It's, it reminds me <laughs> of t- TCB, <laughs> taking care of business, which mm-hmm. was Elvis's big phrase. I don't know if you know that Elvis used to pass out medals. Similar thing. Talk a little bit about why the use of phrases, because you talk about that a lot, the use of phrases in sort of a, a cult-based culture, really, is mm. what, you're, what you're talking about. That's interesting. 
I mean, for me, I'm just, I'm someone who pays attention to language. And so mm-hmm. when I see it sort of contorted and warped in this way, I find it very amusing, but also very strange. And mm-hmm. I think part of it is if you have a new vocabulary for something quite traditional, it's sort of, it's just marketing. It's just, mm-hmm. it's repackaging it as novel or, um, I don't know, innovative in some way. Right. So I think that that's happening on the language level in the same way that it's happening uh, on the business level, right? Like mm-hmm. all of these DTC companies, startups, are really invested in storytelling and branding, and that's sort of what they're selling, actually, more than mm-hmm. any particularly unique product. Um, I was thinking about this on the walk over because uh, I was thinking about soft skills and hard skills and just how good tech is at storytelling, even mm-hmm. though it's so dismissive of soft skills. And I would say soft storytelling is a soft skill. Yeah. But um, I think that the language has something to do with that. That's just my hypothesis. It's mm-hmm. un, untested, unproven. Well, it's language of telling their, creating their own narrative. I think that's mm-hmm. what you're talking about is how totally. to create a narrative that isn't true. Even even to the fact of how these companies were founded, they later put, they apply narratives mm. to things that were not, did not have such a romantic beginning or <laughs> stuff like that. Did you know that. Facebook was created in response to the Iraq War? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Get out. Like, I think for me what's most <laughs> insulting about that, it's like, Mark, we're paying attention to you. <laughs> right, exactly. Do you think we're, we're not watching? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. It's brazen. It says, that actually said a lot. To, I don't know. That particular uh, revisionist history or attempt at revisionist history said a lot to me about, about narrative, but also just about that company. I don't know. I'm curious. Well, I think what I, I like about your book is the constant—I think you point out what it, what's constant lying to themselves. Um, one of the things I always think about is, oh, when I'm as a reporter, you're often like, what are the people lying to me about today? Like, what's the, what's the daily lie that I have to, like, uncover and point out as a lie? And one of the things that I find more helpful is what are they lying themselves about? And so the, 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 what happens in Silicon Valley is this— um, I remember getting here and having to go—I went to a company, I think it was Excite at the time, and the, the founders, they had slides between the floors, like children's slides, you mm-hmm. know, to get mm-hmm. from one floor to the other. Like the sad zipline? Uh, yes, uh, yeah. Scribbed? Yes, exactly. They had a zipline, you're right. Mm-hmm. And they had all those those uh, sticks, those stupid sticks that you write about. Uh, sticks. Yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't get on those. But I remember them saying, oh, slide down the slide, everybody does. And I go, I don't. I'm an adult. I don't <laughs> slide down slides. I didn't like them when I was eight. Oh, my God, Kara. I just like... <laughs> The thought of trying to ha- make you have fun in, a, in an office makes me want to die. <laughs> like, I, I just can't imagine ever trying to convince you into, like, doing an adult scavenger hunt. No, exactly. Oh, <laughs> I pity the person who tries. They've tried. They've tried. One of the ones that was the Zen one. What was the Zen one? Zen whatever. They made everyone take off their shoes when you get there. Oh, so you and their little socks. Slippers. Yeah, their slippers, slippers and socks. <laughs> and they're like... You know, take off your shoes. And when you, I'm like, I'm not taking off my shoes. Come on, that's sweet. That's nice. No, it's not sweet. I don't <laughs> want to take off my fucking shoes. I'm an adult. I wear my shoes and I walk through places. And it was so funny. And they're like, put your shoes here. I'm like, I'm not leaving my shoes here in front with everyone to look at my shoes. I'm going to wear my shoes and walk through your place. And I don't, is there something that you have made of? Is, you know, is the, is the, are the floors made of tiny little, like, small minks that I have to be able to walk on them. Anyway, it was very interesting. Anyway, we get, we're talking to Anna Wiener. She's written a book called Uncanny Valley. When we get back, we're going to talk about why she's calling it Uncanny Valley and also do some readings from the book. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. 
Visit Mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard, where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. We're here with Anna Weiner. She's the author of Uncanny Valley. Anna, why did you call it Uncanny Valley? What was the what was the thinking behind it? Uncanny Valley is a phrase that I stole from robotics. Mm-hmm. It describes a sort of psychological experience when uh, humans encounter, uh, specific to robotics, like a humanoid robot. Mm-hmm. And as the robot becomes more realistic or exhibits human qualities, there's... Um, an increase in affinity for that object. Mm-hmm. And then as it starts to become more realistic but not quite real, right. there's a that dip in that affinity. Right. And so um, it's a feeling of, of uneasiness. What's the word I'm looking for? Not disassociation, but revulsion and horror. Something's wrong here. Right. Yeah. So this feeling that as it approaches full realisticness. So that's what happened to you. That's what happened to you. Yeah, I felt that that was a... Um, appropriate analogy. So talk about how that happened because I mean I think I think the issue is when you're seeing all these false narratives and all these weird phrases and sort of the cultishness if you're the one person who goes wait a minute something's wrong here is very hard to do in this culture of this rah rah wear the t-shirt love the company do group exercises and things like that any any of the number of things that they employ in Silicon Valley to keep people sort of within the bubble that they live in. Yeah, and I am someone who fully participated in that and enjoyed it, you know, mm-hmm. with great pleasure. I was like the person at the company who's saying, let's have yoga classes in the office. Like, <laughs> here I am, someone who would love to, like... <laughs> Do downward-facing dog yeah, with just, colleagues. Yeah, just want to be doing this two feet from my desk. Um, <laughs> we, we did a yoga. It wasn't... Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> uh, when did it turn for you? Talk about yeah. it turning. I'd like you to read a section from the book, because I think one of the moments I read in it that it sort of started to shift. Sure. Yeah. If something's too good to be true, it's usually too good to be true. Um, I will read this this section about a meeting that we had. One morning, a meeting was dropped mysteriously onto our calendars. The last time this happened, we were given forms that asked us to rate various values on a scale of one to five. Our desire to lead a team, the importance of work-life balance. I gave both things a four and was told I didn't want them enough. At the designated time, we shuffled into a conference room, shrugging. The conference room had a million-dollar view of downtown San Francisco, but we kept the shades down. Across the street, a bucket drummer banged out in a regular heartbeat. We sat in a row, backs to the window, laptops open. 
I looked around the room and felt a wave of affection for these men, this small group of misfits who were the only people who understood the backbone to my new life. On the other side of the table, the solutions manager paced back and forth, but he was smiling. He asked us to write down the names of the five smartest people we knew, and my coworkers dutifully obliged. Smart in exactly what way, I wondered, capping and uncapping my pen. I was not accustomed to stack ranking my friends by intelligence. I wrote five names down, a sculptor, a writer, a physicist, two graduate students. I looked at the list and thought about how much I missed them, how bad I'd been at returning phone calls and emails. I wondered how I'd stop making time for the things and people I held dear. I felt blood rush to my cheeks. Okay, the solutions manager said. Now tell me, why don't they work here? So, why don't they work there? They don't want to work in tech. Yeah. Kara, they're smart people who have interests <laughs> in the world, and they're not motivated by the same things that I was motivated by. They're more confident in their interests, or they are, mm-hmm. uh, you know, don't don't need to get their value from a salary. So, I mean, I think for me that that scene or that situation um, really spoke to the hubris and the arrogance of this industry. Yeah. And this idea that if that the sort of most morally superior best contribution you can make to society is working at a startup, in this case, a data analytics startup. Like, I think that that's one of the small things that started to happen that made me think about the end game. Mm-hmm. Like, what am I actually doing this for? And the individual returns were wonderful, right? I was making plenty of money, and it, it felt affirming, all the stuff we just talked about that made me sound like an ad for the industry. But at the end of the day, I, I wasn't quite sure that the project that I was advancing was one that I needed to be participating in let alone one that um, needed to exist in its current form at all, Uh, by which I mean unregulated and a little bit reckless. And uh, anyway. So we're going to get to what's going to happen to this, but talk about this idea of where the hubris comes from, because there's, you know, you also discuss sexual harassment, all kinds of issues that comes with it. Where does that come from? Where Where do you imagine, how did it get created from your perspective? You talk about that a lot in the book. How did it come to this? Like where does the confidence that... Right. I mean, there are so many different ways to answer that question, right? You can sort of answer it structurally or socially. I think on the individual level, my sense of it is that here are people who have largely for structural reasons been catapulted to positions of great power, um, who have, you know, a lot of concentrated wealth themselves or around them. And many of these men who are running companies in Silicon Valley, at least in the startup world, uh, it's their first job or one of their first jobs. Mm -hmm. It's Mark Zuckerberg's first job. Mm -hmm. Um, think about it. Oh, I know. I think about it all the time. I yeah. mean, I've worked for people like this, right. and they've ne- they have no work experience. They're learning how to be an executive with very little work or world experience, honestly, um, at the same time that they're coming of age. And because of the culture here, and I would actually love, while I have you, to like get your perspective on VC culture, which mm-hmm. is like the, one of the more interesting parts of this world to me. Um, largely, like, why are they always on the internet talking, <laughs> giving advice to people who aren't asking for it? But um, <laughs> I, I think that these people are surrounded by other men, largely men, who are talking them up, telling them they're brilliant, telling them that if they're making mistakes, it's not their fault, telling them that critics are just haters. I think that it's a really—what people, people often talk about or tout the, like, uh, optimism and community of Silicon Valley and— Everyone's so supportive, but I think that that can be insulating and that can lead to this um, feeling of both entitlement and 
uh, and defensiveness. I mean, I mm-hmm. think that you have this, like, underdog narrative that people are so unwilling to relinquish. And it's right now, I think it's sort of crystallizing into um, a sense of victimhood that I think mm-hmm. is so bizarre. It's like a completely divorced right. from any understanding of power. Right, right, 100%. It's interesting. I think it has to— I think you're, you're nailing it on the head in terms of, of an enablement culture. It's a really interesting—what's it, fascinating to me is the juvenilization of men, mm-hmm. the total juvenilization of men. And I think when I first got here and saw all the toys, like <laughs> Google had bouncy balls or jump houses and, like, things that children play with, right? The foods were all childlike, you know, whether it was Fruit Loops or— peanut butter bars or chicken fingers or whatever. It was, all the food was was not adult food. It sounds crazy, but it really was an adult food. And I'll never forget, I went to a party for a very uh, well-known person, and everything in it was childlike. And when you walked into the party, they had footy pajamas or diapers you could wear. It was a... It was a, a Kara, this <laughs> is a party you should not have been invited to. The, I know this, that. Was they, it a sex party? It no, sounds, it was not a sex mm. party. I, I mean, I would have enjoyed that more, I'm guessing. But, so they, so they, they, it was a baby shower. And they uh, they were like, you put on the footy pajamas or you put on the diapers with a, with also uh, big glasses. And a, they had the things you put in your mouth, uh, pacifiers, right? But candy pacifiers. Kara, and, was this a rave? No, no. It this was a horrifying. baby shower. I went to so many parties like this. Oh. And I li- and then you walked in, there was a bouncy house, there was food that was all pudding and like baby food, baby kind of food eaten in baby kind of ways. And there was rollerblading and and I wouldn't put on the suit. I wouldn't put on any outfits. And you wouldn't take off your shoes, I wouldn't take off it. my shoes. <laughs> and the person goes, you know, you have to wear pretty pajamas or the diaper. And I said, I, I'm not wearing either, like neither of them. And they're like, you're no fun. I go, yeah, I'm no fun. That's with me. That's Kara Swisher, no fun Swisher. And literally, I was the only person who didn't do it. And it was except for one person, now governor of, of California, Gavin Newsom. And he was wearing his suit and wearing his shoes. And I was <laughs> wearing my clothes. And everybody else was dressed as children around us. And, <laughs> and he goes, he goes, how did you get out of it? And I said, dignity, just plain old dignity. I said, how did you get out of it? He goes, I knew you'd be here and you'd totally write about it if I was wearing a diaper or footy this pajamas or something. This is insane anecdote. It was, it was crazy. But there was, that was one of <laughs> dozens of parties like that. And I remember thinking at the time, there's something deeply wrong with a culture that has to juvenilize themselves. And I thought there's a couple of things happening. Happening here. One is they had shitty high school experiences where they never got to have fun because they were, you know, they were either geeks or something. And that's sort of the old revenge of the nerds kind of scenario, which I thought was kind of not it's probably kind of true. condescending. Condescending. It wasn't. I don't think that was what was happening. Or that, the, that, that this culture of enormous amounts of like creating college campuses or some sort of like Peter Pan like island of lost boys kind of thing. That's really what it was more like. Mm -hmm. And again, you know how that ended up. They all ended up as donkey slaves, uh, essentially. And so it was just, (laughs) I remember thinking, like, something is wrong here. And like, jump on the jumpy, Kara, do this. And I was like, no, I am not, I mean, these are businesses. You're just creating things, products that you are selling. And it was really, the pull towards it was really quite fascinating. And I don't, I don't, I don't know why. Um, but I do think it has to do with the enablement and telling people that they're very smart when they're not, like overindulged children. And VCs, I think, are the worst of them because here you have, say, and then I'll stop my rant, at Uber, for example, you have all the VCs that were like 
pushing Travis up and saying what a genius he was and telling him he was a genius and giving him tons of money, which is also a way of loving someone, right? Um, and whoa, whoa, whoa. Can we unpack that? Yeah, well, you know what I mean. <laughs> Give them money. Like, you're so smart. Here's a pile of money. You're so smart. Here's more money. It's what you do to, to spoiled children, essentially. It's not an unselfish thing to do in their case. No, not at all, because it's all about what they're going to make on the other end. And then not worrying about when they start misbehaving. And I remember having a discussion with one one of the uh, of the investors who was like, oh, we, they're not so bad. I'm like, no, no, there's sexual harassment going on there. There's this going on here. There's this going on here. There's really, this is out of control. Why is there liquor in the office? It says sexual harassment to me if there's liquor mm. in the office. You know what I mean? Like, where are you going to end up if people are drinking all day at a company? See, for me, the liquor in the office, at least initially, was, oh, I'm a trusted adult. Mm. Mm-mm. To me, it says As sexual long- harassment is coming. Next. Yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, yeah. this has been proven. But, uh, you know, starting out, I was thinking, I'm trusted to have a beer at work because I'm getting my work done because I'm smart and competent. Mm-hmm. And people don't care. It's the value of my work. It's not the value of your work. I mean, that helps. Gets you so far. But... Wait, I would like to return, okay. if I may. Okay, sure, to, please, um, be happy to. To the, to the childlike workplaces, because I have, like, a much more sympathetic reading of that. Okay, all right, go ahead. Um, which now, after you've just spoken, I feel, I feel like a fool. All right, let me hear your sympathetic reading. I feel like the ridiculousness of these offices, the childishness, has something to do with, like, uh, a physical world to offset the intangible nature of these products mm-hmm. where, and, and adult spaces tend not to be tangible in that way, right? Mm-hmm. It's like an adult space has fine art and you can't touch it because it has too much value. And so this, the kids stuff is to have a sense of, uh, like add a physical dimension to this work. As I'm saying this, it's, it feels mm. wrong. I think you're probably right that it's more about flattery and about this like irreverence. Um, but I guess I just I just have this like, probably unfounded compassion for people who are building stuff and committing their lives to things that just don't physically exist mm-hmm. and have a lot of power and have a lot of social influence. But, um, you know, your code is constantly getting rewritten. It's getting erased. It's getting replaced. It's You're building stuff that never even gets shipped. Um, and so these spaces, to me, signify like a... a desire for groundedness of some mm-hmm. sort. Why um, grounded in that way? You can have a comfortable place. You can have like a, <laughs> a pottery barn kind of atmosphere. You can have right. whatever. You can have a comfortable adult space that is not, you know, shabby chic. I don't know. And you'll notice that the startups now that are sort of considered more adult, they have like the West Elm-esque furniture. Yes, the West and Elm-esque. like they all have libraries. Yeah. They yeah. the company library where people, employees bring their books. Yeah. Um, or terrariums, like at Amazon, for example, <laughs> who is which is not a, which is an adult culture. If you think about it, That's if you go there, they he never indulged in any of that. He was more like tough dad. With like you're gonna you're gonna work on a door. That's what I'm gonna just buy doors because I'm cheap and that's what we're gonna do. And you're gonna be better for it, kind of thing. Which is a different kind of dad, right? Yeah, it's the mean dad. It's the mean withholding dad, which is I think their culture there. But getting back to the idea of what they're doing, as I think it juvenilizes the culture, and therefore you're not responsible for the implications totally. of what you've done. Totally. It's and like so, uh, it's like dressing like a scrub when you're a multi multi millionaire, right? Which also happens here, right? Exactly. And I think one of the things that I, I found was interesting <laughs> is did you did, so when you think about this, you still are very sympathetic to them. You feel that they're that that it's more like lost boys than no. No, 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 no. I think that the people who have power and responsibility should be accountable for it. I don't mm-hmm. push a lost boy narrative. I wouldn't. I'm sympathetic to them. I think, first of all, I think that's my, that's like a, um, 
this book is probably representative of my bad personality, which is just like I would like to be analytical and um, theoretical and like have a spine, but I'm also a very empathetic person mm-hmm. and want to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, like usually far past the point of that being appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't write this book out of contempt. I didn't write it. You you can you read some memoirs from Silicon Valley or personal narratives, and they're just dripping with contempt. Mm-hmm. And to me, that that sort of obscures the structural story. Um, so my hope always with this book is has been that um, the personal narratives illuminate some structural narrative, or mm-hmm. not some, but the structural narrative. Well, of talk about that because here. a lot of people, reviewers, are talking about it like that. You've eviscerated these people. I didn't think you. I, I thought you were very kind, actually. Um, Thank and, you. And had some affection for, it's hard because some of it is really wonderful. Like the discover, innovation, discovery, challenging norms is wonderful on some level. On the other hand, challenging norms, um, breaking things, disrupting things is really damaging. Like Trump is a good example. It's sort of the version of the, the juvenilization of men taken to the ultimate extreme. It's just, I'm going to break and break and break and then everything's broken. You know what I mean? There's a, there's, there's a flip side to both things. Yeah. I'm not quite sure what the question well, the, is that I'm answering. What I'm wondering Sorry. is what, 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 what's interesting in the reviews is it's talked about like oh, it's right. eviscerating memoir. Yeah. I don't think that's the case. Do you, do you, were you trying to do that? I don't no. think you were. There was no, no way you could read it that way. No, I'm not actually, I'm, I'm really heartened to hear you say that you thought it was kind because I think you're harder on yourself than anyone else in this sort of pulling, being pulled into it in such a way. Well, what kind of person writes a book about their workplace, Kara? <laughs> <laughs> My aim with this book was always to be generous. Mm-hmm. I think that um, for this, you know, I experienced probably on a much smaller scale than a lot of founders this sort of intoxication, these seductive narratives. Um, I can't imagine what it would be like to be 29 and have been running a company for a decade. That's crazy. Um, I have a lot of sympathy for that person, even if they don't want it. I mean, I will also say that I, like, have this problem of being sympathetic toward people who are, like, totally happy with their lives. They mm-hmm. don't want it. They're like, get away. You're like this oozing ball of emotion. Like, <laughs> this is horrifying. Probably also explains why I wasn't a great fit in this industry, that that's not really a valued personality type. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I hope it's an indictment of the system. I hope that, um, you know, the reason I make fun of venture capitalists in the book and, and VC Twitter is that, it's coming from the top, right? And they'll say, oh, well, we're just invest, you know, we're, it's the LPs who are, is it, wait, sorry, I always confuse this. The LPs are yeah. fund the venture capitalists. Right. We don't, we're actually just middlemen, but I think that a lot of this culture is created at the sort of like business tier. Mm-hmm. And once we can start talking about that and what's wrong there, it, it, you start to see these people, these founders and whomever as sort of expressions of that culture, as sure. outgrowths. I have this friend, have you ever encountered Maura Weigel? Mm-mm. She's brilliant. She's an academic and a, and a writer, um, co-founder of Logic magazine. But we were having a conversation once, and, and she, um, about all this stuff, and she'd gone to college with Mark Zuckerberg, and we were sort of saying how strange it is to see these people ascend mm-hmm. who are just normal people to us. Right. And she was like, look, if Mark Zuckerberg didn't exist, the industry would invent him. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is just like sums it all up. Right. Um, and so that's also why I am, feel some forgiveness toward people. It's harder, though, when I'm thinking about Mark Zuckerberg. I'm like, he's accountable. He should be held accountable. Um, there's too much concentration of wealth and power in this small group of individuals who feel completely exempt from uh, responsibility or from uh, consequences. All right, we're going to talk about consequences next when we get back. We're here with Anna Weiner. She's the author of Uncanny Valley, a memoir. She's getting great reviews right now about her time 
at a startup in Silicon Valley. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Life moves pretty fast. Are you drinking water that can keep up? Smartwater Alkaline has everything you need to stay hydrated, no matter where your day takes you. Whether you're pitching a tent or your next big idea, Smartwater Alkaline can help you perform your best. It delivers a pure, crisp taste that makes it the perfect chaser after a big workout. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. We're here with Anna Weiner. She's the author of Uncanny Valley, a memoir. So, Anna, one of the things, I want you to read another section that you like, um, and then I want to talk about some where the implications are going. And a question I got from Twitter, which I think is very fair, it's that many people do see this book as an indictment of Silicon Valley and where we are, um, though you do not, and I do not either, actually, um, but that a lot of people of color, women, uh, people of color especially, have been saying these things for a long time and are not heard. So I want to talk about who gets heard in this culture uh, as we're moving forward, but first, do a f- quick reading first. Sure. Um, maybe I'll read something related to what you just said. I do think it's an indictment of the culture and the structural dimension of this of the industry, but not an indictment of any individual or okay. company. That's why I didn't name individuals. Yeah, I want to talk yeah. about that, too. Um, okay, let's see. Should I read, read about Grace Hopper? Please do. Yeah. I flew to Phoenix for an annual conference of women in computing. The conference had been established in honor of a female engineer who helped develop military technologies during the Second World War, a nod, perhaps inadvertent, to the industry's under-acknowledged government origins. On the plane, I joked with my seatmate about whether the National Security Agency would have a recruitment booth, a bad joke that only got worse when I learned that the NSA was one of the conference's major patrons. I was not really a woman in computing, more a woman around computing, a woman with a computer, but I was curious, and the open-source startup was a conference sponsor. All interested employees, regardless of gender, were invited to attend. While nobody was excited to explore Phoenix, a city whose downtown appeared to be a series of interconnected parking lots, the company put us up in a boutique hotel with a pool and a Mexican restaurant. The restaurant bar quickly became our new headquarters. On the first night, my coworkers gathered over bowls of guacamole and sweaty margaritas. I hovered on the periphery, hoping the women engineers would adopt me. I found them intimidating, smart, passionate about their work, and unafraid to call bullshit, at least in the privacy of their own cohort. I had no conception of what it would be like as a woman in tech whose skill set was respected. I was disappointed to learn that it wasn't too dissimilar from being a woman whose skill set wasn't. 
For the most part, the other women seemed glad that some of the company's problems had been exposed. Too many people puking in the elevator, metaphorically and not. Too many unexamined disparities. The obsession with meritocracy had always been suspect at a prominent international company that was overwhelmingly white, male, and American, and had fewer than 15 women in engineering. For years, my coworkers explained, the absence of an official org chart had given rise to a secondary, shadow org chart, determined by social relationships and proximity to the founders. Employees who were technically rank-and-file had executive-level power and leverage. Those with the ear of the CEO could influence hiring decisions, internal policies, and the reputational standing of their colleagues. Flat structure except for pay and responsibilities, said an internal tools developer, rolling her eyes. It's probably easier to be a furry at this company than a woman. <laughs> I love that. It's true, though. Absolutely. Where's the lie, Kara? Yeah, where's the lie? Um, the... Um, it, that is absolutely. I'm always looking for the money, who gets paid and who did it. I, years ago, I did a story called The Men and No Women of Facebook, and I just put pictures up. I said, here, look, look here. <laughs> I think I remember that. It was just pictures. And yeah. then I did the same thing, The Men and No Women of Boards of Internet Companies, because mm-hmm. like, that's somewhere where you can find a lot of diversity, where you can easily pick for that. Kara, they just haven't earned it. They just haven't earned it. They don't it. have the, the standards. merit. Standards. They don't have standards. Um, I always get weird. I have standards. I'm like, well, where did you pick the 10 idiots who are running the company now? Because like, you're running it into the ground. And so one of the things I always say is it's a meritocracy, not a meritocracy. And mm-hmm. so that, that's one of their lines, the meritocracy thing, which is complete bullshit mm-hmm. when it comes to pay equity and everything else. So talk about that issue. One of the questions on Twitter was this idea that people of color, for example, have been saying this for a long time, and that people like you or Susan Fowler at Uber— uh, when they write memos, then suddenly people pay attention to this issue. And again, you're getting a lot of attention for this. Talk yeah, about I think that, that's right. that the, the idea of who gets voice and, and who say, when people say things, whether they're heard or not. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I do want to be clear that I feel that my project's pretty different from Susan Fowler. Mm-hmm. Susan Fowler is a whistleblower. She's, her book's called Whistleblower. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not a whistleblower. This book is not polemical. It's not academic. There are people who've been working on diversity and inclusion, people who've been working in academia around content moderation, on content moderation and on, you know, on platform responsibility and ethics and AI. Like, I don't feel that I'm contributing a new idea to the conversation. That's Mm -hmm. not what I'm trying to do. Um, I'm writing about my own life and my own experiences in the last decade in Mm -hmm. this industry. And my hope is that it is a personal narrative that will be interesting and entertaining and illuminating, but Mm -hmm. it's not, um, I would never position myself as like a a savior or a whistleblower or a, you know, um, this is a memoir. This isn't. (laughs) Yeah. But you don't want something done. You're not necessarily calling for things to be done. But I'd love to know what you— This isn't a a book with a— But you must have an idea of what you think has to happen or what is going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I'm not—I don't have the hubris of my former peers to think that I'm the person to provide solutions. I have some ideas of what could be helpful. Um, Well, let's talk about those. Okay. Well, let me go back to your question, though, about who gets gets hurt, hurt, because I think that that's important. I wrote a piece for The New Yorker after Susan Fowler did release her memo, and it was sort of about how she was— best positioned to be a whistleblower inside of Uber, especially inside of that culture, which sounds incredibly toxic, and um, for various reasons. We can link to Mike Isaac's Mm -hmm. (laughs) work. You know, Susan Fowler was white. She was young. She was attractive. She was technical. She had published books in her field. She um, had taken... She had notes, you know. She had documentation of everything that happened. She had screenshots. She... 
had, she did everything by the book. Any one of those things, had they been different, I think the reaction would have been to undermine and discredit her immediately. Mm-hmm. And people tried to do it anyway. Right. Uh, and so I think— She certainly had locked it down, and the presentation <laughs> was also good, her presentation to the world. Yeah, I mean, right. Her The tone of that memo that she published on her blog was even-keeled. It was rational. It was non-emotional, unemotional. Um, so, yeah, all of which is to say, I mean, I think that— I think it's a problem. I think who gets hurt in society is a problem. It's not uh, It's not that w- one that I can solve as like a white, privileged Jewish woman. Um, it's one that I can do my best to be aware of and try to bring other voices into the conversation. It's something I think about in my reporting. But yeah, I, I take that criticism seriously. I, I don't know. I don't feel personally responsible, but I think that I am implicated and, and I'm aware of that. But yeah, I mean, I think that's another a big conversation to have about publishing, about um, these companies, who gets not just who gets hired, but who has, like, internal clout. I mean, I've, I saw this at one of the companies I worked for. You know, there's a, a lot of talk and a lot of excitement and a lot of really hard work being done in terms of diversity and inclusion initiatives, and then that all can disappear in an instant based on hierarchical decisions. So... Um, I don't know if I'm really answering the question. No, I get it. I get it. So when you talk about what can be done, what Mm -hmm. has to happen? I mean, one of the things is more voices because Mm -hmm. more voices creates a question of what people are doing. I'm firmly of the belief that a lot of these platforms would would have been safer had there been more voices in the room saying just a second. Those voices were in the room. They just weren't listened to. That's what I mean. Who's not listened to and who doesn't? Who doesn't get to call the shots? And I, I think people's as empathetic as people can be. No matter anybody can be empathetic to other people's experiences, but you tend not to be empathetic when you're in a homogeneous situation, which often these people are, or they're being constantly lauded for being perfect. Um, when you're told you're perfect, you think everything you do is perfect, and therefore you can't make any mistakes, and therefore a mistake is not a mistake; it's critics or or whatever. Or there's the thing. There's this phrase that people often use in, in tech. On balance, mm-hmm. um, and it's not exclusive to tech, but on balance, what you're doing is good, and so right. therefore, all of these negative consequences are sort of worth it. The, you know, it's down for the cause. Right. Um, the end game is it nets out. Um, mm-hmm. I find that sort of like economic logic that's applied to like social moral issues horrifying. Yeah, um, but I think that. Yeah, like you said, it's it's empathy has its limits, right? It's actually about power. It's about. Um, who can take action and how quickly and uh, the extent to which they can make change internally in a, in a product. So so what are the solutions? Because I think right now the reaction has been victimhood. But I am seeing glimmers of that, of new founders not putting up with that. More, Lots of different things happening where people are saying, you know, you're, I get it a lot. Like I'll have people attack me from the companies and then people work there say thank you. Hmm. Um, which is really interesting. It's a very different thing. And so you can hear sort of people really being discomforted about what they've done and what they've created. And at the same time, they don't want to feel badly about the whole thing, right? Again, what you're saying, on balance, some of it is good. But to be able to correct it, what do you imagine some of the solutions have to happen? Just we're businesses and that's what we are. I keep saying that to them. I'm like, all you do is make money. That's what you're doing. You're selling stuff or you're selling dating or you're selling communications or you're selling... I don't think acknowledging that these are businesses is a solution. I think that's like step one in Mm -hmm. Mm self-awareness because business is not morally superior in any any way. Uh, I think that it it helps to look at the problems of the industry right now. I think some of of them, not all of them, have to do with 
at the company level with um, these questions of who has clout, who has buy-in, um, mm-hmm. who has leverage, diversity and inclusion. I think in terms of the industry and the products and the, the business models that are most popular, I think I do think venture capital has a lot to do with it, these injections of capital that the end game for which is usually monopoly. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also like centralization, privatization on the internet, like ad optimized for advertising, these sort of atomizing social networks or products. Um, And so if then you look at the flip of that, like what does it look like to have decentralized platforms or to have collective ownership or to have more transparency about data collection? Um, I'm very excited about the prospect of regulation. I know that a lot of what has been uh, proposed isn't isn't quite right, but I'm curious if if you would agree with this. My instinct is that companies, like in financial tech, uh, companies that are already operating inside of regulated industries tend to have healthier workplace cultures because mm-hmm. they're beholden to something. Right. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of law breaking in other yes <laughs> in other realms. But do you, does that track for you, or yes, am I just absolutely. being optimistic? I think there are people are dying for rules. It's, again, it's like children. They, <laughs> yes, you can eat, eat sugar all night, and yes, you can stay up and dance. But you, there are repercussions, right? Like people, at some point, people like consist- consistency. They like rules. You can't do this. You can't do this. And they like to then chafe against the rules. like, And that's where it seems like I was having an argument with someone and I was like, look, let's just get some rules into place and then we can argue about the best ones of how to do this or how to... Um, maybe there should be some sort of, you know, way to c- control what the regulations are going to be. But no regulations creates this. This is what happens. And therefore, nobody's in charge and therefore no one's accountable for anything. And and they can continue to do what they want to do with unfettered amounts of money and unfettered amounts of power. Mm-hmm. And one of the striking things about Silicon Valley, which I still get to this day, is the lack, the want to push away power. I don't have power. The the we, the word, the, you, I listen to language a lot too. When you talk, hear a lot of these people talking about, together we need to solve this problem. And I'm like, together we didn't create it. Yeah, did you, but, this problem that you... <laughs> yeah, or we all need to work together. And I think all of the leaders talk like that. And I'm like, you're, you got all the benefits. We got none of the benefits. We got, I don't know, maybe a free map or a, you know, we're cheap dates to these companies and are then told to clean it up. Like, we have to clean up the toxic waste. And I, that's where I really, I don't quite know how that gets solved except by regulation. Right. Or just a dramatic reimagining of what the business model is, right? Like, I think a lot of the cultural problems are actually expressions of uh, the incentives of venture capital, of this, mm-hmm. um, you have this injection of capital, there's a ton of urgency, you have to grow really quickly, You have to scale. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea is that you should reach as many people as possible with a fairly homogenous product um, internationally, if when when possible. There's just no this this emphasis on speed is something I just keep returning to, like the relationship to time, and I don't know how you can encourage people to act responsibly when you have that dimension. Like I I just was talking to someone about. recently about Uber and how their self-driving car hit a jaywalker and she died. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was because the car wasn't, it didn't, they hadn't written in as a rule or whatever parameter or potential situation that uh, that jaywalking could happen. And so she was mistaken for a piece of cardboard, I think it was. And that's an acceptable mistake to make if you are working on a, working on a product that's like a, a game or... Mm-hmm. Um, 
like, oh, you have a bug in your code. You, like, didn't consider all of the possible use cases for mm -hmm. your productivity software, you know, whatever. It's an egregious oversight. There's absolutely no reason that, that should have happened for a self-driving car. Mm -hmm. It's like, and I think that that is the application of an engineering culture that is specific to, like, consumer-facing products or even B2B products um, that when it moves into the physical world is 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 beyond reckless. Mm -hmm. um, but they're operating under the same incentives, if that makes sense. Like, you wouldn't see that engineering culture at Boeing. Right. No, not at all. Although, look at what's well, happening. Yeah, yes. <laughs> not Horrible Boeing. analogy. Sorry. Yes, you would say that. <laughs> yes, but they've been infected by the idea of speed and getting things done rather quickly. Well, everyone has, like, an innovation lab now. Right, exactly. Like a 3D printer. Yeah. And so when you're going machine. forward, let's finish up talking about where mm -hmm. where you wanted, if you had to come up with, I don't, I don't want you to boil things down, but what are the messages you want people to take away from this memoir? This is just Anna's time in Silicon Valley or? My book about <laughs> me, by me. Um, <laughs> also me. I mean, I think the book is pretty ambivalent, right? Mm -hmm. I think I personally have strong feelings about tech, but mm -hmm. I wanted it to be emotionally truthful to my experience here. I personally think it's politically useful to, for people to just understand how people talk about things here. Um, who are the intellectuals in this, personally, I believe to be anti-intellectual, yes, ahistorical culture? Um, who, what does it look like when people are making decisions inside of these companies? What's mundane? What is, uh, what's an ordinary day at a workplace like? And so I think tech is really good, A, at storytelling, but also B, at uh, obfuscation, at like sort of having this, it's a sort of mystified culture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not mystified, that's the wrong word. It has a lot of mystique. Mm -hmm. And I think if I can help demystify some of that and explain what it has been like in this particular time and place, I think that that's useful, and that's my 100%. hope. 100%. And of the many truths that you're telling here, what do you think? To me, I think the, the what I come away from this book is, which I think you nail completely, which I talk about a lot, is the carelessness, mm -hmm. is the lack of care. And I don't know how else to put it. It's not sloppiness. It's not... Um, it's just lack of care. And I don't understand... Again, it's juvenile. It's lack of, like... It's not leaving things, except it's not like my kid leaving his room a mess. It's creating real damage. And not not caring, because I do not, I don't think that's really it. It's the lack of care in it happening. The lack of ability to understand consequences. And I think that's one of the good parts that I got out of this book. Yeah, I think, thank you. I think that uh, what's exciting to people who are building things is not the consequences. It's the building of the thing. and. Mm -hmm. Um, when you talk to people about programming who love programming, like they're telling you about the system, they're telling you about the puzzle solving and problem solving, and it's, I guess I'm sympathetic to that to a certain extent, but it's also as if it's fully divorced from any real world applications or consequences. And, and I, I don't know, I, I had a conversation with someone at a party once where I was their CEO of a platform, and I was like, are you? you worried at all about uh, disinformation or, you know, what do you do? Because I was working in, like, content moderation, content moderation policy at the time. And I was like, how, do you, how are you dealing with this? Are you, like, getting a lot of white supremacist content as well? And he was like, oh, I don't really know. I'm actually really interested in the machine learning applications of our user-generated content. And I was like, right, of course you are. This is the, the, these other problems are, are for, like, the user experience team to take care of. Mm -hmm. And I guess I, um, 
in a situation like that, it makes perfect sense to me. I just, it also, it's like, right, you shouldn't have to care about that, but you also shouldn't have this much power over like a pretty widely used mm-hmm. user-generated content platform. So I don't know. I feel, I, again, I, this is happening again to me, Kara. This is what I mean about my terrible mm-hmm. personality. Why am I making excuses for these people? Mm-hmm. I, I'm Why constantly running up against it. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's because I have, it's, this is just who I am. It's like I'm, um, they haven't, earned it, they don't deserve it, and I'm, like, going to bat for people who couldn't give less of a shit about me and also, like, don't need it. They don't need my protection, but I... Spiraling out, spiraling out here, Kara. <laughs> don't worry, <laughs> I'm call here. my therapist. I'm here to slap them <laughs> fucking silly because I think they're awful. A lot of them are awful. Yeah, that's also true. That's also yeah. true. Right. Awful and careless people, you oh. know? Do you know that, you know, I always use the Great Gatsby quote, remember, Daisy and uh, what's her husband's name? Or careless people, the famous Fitzgerald quote about uh, at the, the end of Great Gatsby, they moved on, they did damage and moved on to their protected lives. All I remember at the end of the Great Gatsby is Zoe beat on boats against born against the current. <laughs> that's the that's it is one of the quotes. Yes. Uh, I haven't read that for approximately yeah. Yeah. fourteen. Yeah, there's twenty years. It, so 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 when you when you want to when you think about where is going next, I'd, I'd like you to finish up talking about that. Where do you imagine is what what are you covering now? What do you think is important? I mean, I think that what has kept me writing about Silicon Valley and what has kept me living in San Francisco is a lot of the same stuff that brought me here in the first place. I'm most interested in writing about employee culture, workplace culture, what people do when they live here. Um, <laughs> you know, what do they do for fun? Mm-hmm. What does that tell us about um, about this business? I'm trying to think of a specific example I can share. So what do you... I mean, most of my reporting, my, my writing is cultural comment or commentary or reporting on the sort of broader implications of a particular company, say. Mm-hmm. So... It's not like hard-hitting investigative journalism, mm-hmm. and I take great pleasure in that, I think, because it speaks to a more ordinary experience um, in this place rather than like a story about what's happening in a board meeting. Right. Though, I, you know, if anyone has tips, I would welcome them. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, I don't know. For me, it's the human drama. It's like the, this ambition, the way people feel when they're here— um, I find all of that really, really interesting. Those are the stories that I want to be telling. And you haven't also left San Francisco. Oh, no. I'm probably here for a long time unless I get run out. So. I don't think you're going to get run out. I'll read you the Great Gatsby quote. Oh, and thank then we'll you. finish. It was all very careless and confused. They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back to their money and their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together and let other people clean up the mess they made. <laughs> I think we're going to get them to clean it up themselves. That's my goal and stuff like that. But I really appreciate this book. It's a wonderful book by Anna Weiner. She's a writer for The New Yorker, which you write about lots of different things for them. Um, and she's also the author of a book that you really should read called Uncanny Valley, a memoir. It's beautifully written. Um, and I really appreciate you being here. Um, and I don't mind that you're nice to them. You're, you're, you're less nice than you think, actually, <laughs> too, at the same time, even though you're empathetic. Uh, Hard to find a You're killing them with kindness is how I would put it. <laughs> anyway, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Anna, where can people find you online? Are you Twitter? I am on yes, Twitter. I am at Anna Wiener. Mm-hmm. It's W-I-E-N-E-R. And I also welcome email. Love to get an email. 
Absolutely. Anyway, <laughs> if you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you share it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then.